We individualize training in the pool. So why not individualize your nutrition? Erica Barney of Barney Wellness Building will help you and your swimmers get exactly what each athlete needs through genetic testing and personalized nutrition plans. So stop guessing what you should and shouldn't be putting into your body. Athletes within a few weeks have noticed they're recovering faster because they're fueling their body with what they need and staying away from what their body hates. Erica understands swimming. She gets it. She's worked with over 20 Olympians, including the fastest man in the world, Caleb Dressel. Group discounts are available. So go to Biney Wellness Building and get in touch with Erica today. That's Biney, B-E-I-N-E, wellnessbuilding.net. All right, here we go. Bernard Savage, how you doing, mate? Yeah, very good. Brett, how about you? I'm good, mate. It's 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 great to catch up. Uh, for those that don't know the history of you and I, um, tell us kind of what you used to do and um, and how we kind of first got in, in contact with each other. Well, I worked in swimming when when I was working with you, Brett. Obviously, uh, and that was a long time ago now um, during mm. your career. Uh, mm. And my role at that stage was I was a, a sports scientist, and my my background is physiology, but I. I think by the time I was working in and around the squads that you were with, so with with, uh, with Popey, and I was a bit more of a generalist in terms of the science. I was combining physiology and, I suppose, crudely biomechanics, stroke efficiency and technique sort of work. So looking at uh, really uh, trying to assist the coaches to, to get the very best out of their their athletes and, and help you guys and girls uh, as athletes to understand better the, the link between um, your your efficiency and your speed and how that was going to ultimately end up in better performance. Yeah, I always felt like Australia were kind of on the cutting edge of that, and you were at the forefront of leading that. Was I wrong in that assessment? Oh, uh, I don't I don't think so. I think everyone was doing something, you know, along those lines in different ways. I think, you know, I think I certainly don't consider myself to be contemporary in that space now. I, you know, I've been out of sports yeah. science and out of swimming for the best best part of 10 years now so but certainly at the time we were we were trying things differently we were trying to use you know race analysis was becoming uh, more prevalent and we were certainly on the on the forefront of leading how we how methodically and how st uh, strategically we were using race analysis both during competition and then trying to then say okay well it's great during competition but how can we use that on a daily basis and i suppose that's where i felt like we were were leading in terms of bringing the race analysis to the training environment and going, okay, well, what's what's this telling us about how we need to race and how we need to train to prepare to race, uh, and and uh, you know, and make sure that that's then. So when you get to the race situation, you're not trying to do something you haven't thought about or been aware of all the way through your training. So instead of just going up and down hard and fast, it's actually some some. Uh, some some basis to it and some other parameters you're looking to try and maximize other than just how fast you get from, you know, one set at one end of the pool to the other is yeah. how are you actually doing that? Your stroke length, your, your, your rating, your efficiency, your, your splits through it. So that was sort of where we, I think we were, you know, not just myself, but certainly the, the people that were working in swimming at that time were really trying to, trying to understand better and push the boundaries and, you know, we had some really, really open coaches to to that. You were with one with Popey, with Ian Pope, and Rowan Taylor was another one who was all, who was really open to that sort of mm. that sort of uh, thinking. And they, they were the coaches that I worked with quite closely there in Victoria. Yeah, well, that that was it. And so to give people context, um, I moved to Victorian swimming from from New South Wales swimming. New South Wales was my home state. You know, I grew up in Sydney. I came back from America in 1999, and I started swimming and you know, I, I trained in sydney for the sydney olympics and then i spent a few more seasons there training for the world championships and other events and kind of traveled the world and then made the decision in 2003 to move down to ian pope in victoria and that was kind of where you were based more more in victorian swimming at that point in time and that's where i really had much more of a connection with you and and hands-on connection where it felt it felt uh very high performance in in terms of like victorian swimming and and uh, the Victorian Institute of Sport at the time seemed to be investing in athletics, investing in you as kind of the leader in that and kind of almost giving you free reign to say, hey, go with this program where you where you feel like you, you want to go and, and get the results you want to get. Is that is that correct? 
Yeah, I think so. And I, like I sort of I reflect now on on where I am now in my career as a performance director, and I think you know <clears throat> I think I think fondly back on my time at the VIS because mm. you know I was working in when I moved to Victoria. For, I was at I was at Sassy in South Australia for for six years, and I had the opportunity to work there with great coach and great program, Glenn Berenger and and you know Ryan, Ryan Mitchell, Phil Rogers, Helen Denman, those breaststroke crew that came through. Uh, and you know, through from '96 through Sydney, through Sydney in 2000, and when I moved to Victoria in 2002, it was in a program manager's role. So I, I was had the opportunity to really combine leading a program strategically, but also being hands-on with the coaches and the athletes from a science and from a support perspective. Mm. So I got a little bit of the best of both worlds, and that provided, I think, a really good foundation for the way the program could be could be run because. And to your to your point, really thinking about well, everything is driven by how do we get the best out of our you know how do we, out of the athletes and the coaches. So it's really truly a high performance environment. So around the two or three programs that we had that were that were delivering delivering athletes, and you know we had obviously Ian's program with and you moved down to that, and there was a few other high quality athletes that were there as well. We had Rowan. Glenn Baker and Andrew Lauderstein, who was making his his entry into swimming at that point in time as well. So, yeah. to work with a young developing kid who turned into being a you know an Olympic medalist. So, it was a really really great time in my career, and I think fondly back on the time and the athletes that I got the opportunity, the privilege to work with you being one of those, uh, and you know ultimately taking those athletes through to to um, to Athens. Yeah, and you know, then having the opportunity then to extend that work from to a national team perspective by by being also on national team and moving towards having a strategic leadership role to, for swimming in Australia, which I moved to in two thousand and seven. Yeah, uh, when I was employed by Swimming Australia. Yeah, I mean, you you moved on to you know bigger positions, but at that time, from memory, and I look, I think back on it, like you you were kind of um, all in on this. It was like you you would you would go and travel with us and i mean this is a this is a lifestyle commitment too this isn't just a job where you're you're clocking in at nine o'clock in the morning and clocking out at five o'clock you know like you're you're yeah. in this as a lifestyle as well and the lifestyle itself is very demanding in terms of like you've got to be available for anything and everything and that that meant at, for you like traveling to you know certain destinations with us and being at certain workouts and, and doing all that sort of stuff so it's like it was almost like uh, I don't think you had a life at that stage. You were just living. <laughs> I, was, I was certainly fully invested. I was yeah. I was fully invested, and and but I, I at no point do I have any regrets or feel like I've missed out on anything that I could have been doing other than what I was doing. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Uh, and so and look, yeah, it was it was a time commitment. If I was, you know, I was on pool deck most mornings and most afternoons at different locations. So yeah, up super early, and then you know. But I still managed to fit in um, all the training that I wanted to do. I still managed to fit in, you know, having a having good friendships and and good, you know, what I thought was it was a really good time and enjoying Melbourne for what Melbourne was yeah. in, back in those days. So, um, but I I think if you got if you want to if you want to be able to the, the way I take up all my roles and it's even even now as a performance director is that if the ones who you're ultimately trying to support and facilitate an outcome for, which is which is the athletes or players, then they have to, if you're going to ask them to invest in what they need to do to be high performance, then I feel like you have a responsibility to demonstrate to them that you're invested in them as well. So you need yeah. to be there at training, showing that you you care about them and you care about what they're doing so that when you ask them to do something, they trust it's coming from the right place. Right, so, right. That's what I was doing with you guys was being there on pool deck so that I wasn't just some Johnny come lately, turn up every two weeks and start telling you what you should be doing technically. It's like, no, this guy, he actually watches us train. He talks to our coach all the time. He talks to us all the time. He knows us. We trust him. <clears throat> so you're prepared to explore opportunities and explore, explore different think, ways of thinking if that's what's required to, to try and find a way to go faster. Yeah, and what I appreciated about you at the time, which I probably haven't even told you is, um, and maybe I didn't appreciate it enough where I haven't told you, whereas 
uh, I wasn't aware of it, but looking back on it is like you, you presented us with the, the quality of the work ethic that you had, but you presented us with the information and, and you gave it to us in a way that allowed us to make decisions on it. It wasn't like you were, Hey, this is, this is what I've seen. This is what I'm doing. You weren't forcing it down our throats in terms of like, it was kind of like, here's the work I've done. I'm going to present it and I, I can, I can talk you through it, but you do what you want with it kind of thing, you know, and everybody was a bit different. Some people were really into the science and the numbers and wanted to know the details and other people like me in a way were kind of like, okay, great. I've seen it. I'm going to move on and go over here and do this now because I've, yeah. I've, I've appreciated it. So I always appreciated that you just presented it and, and people could take it how they wanted to take it, you know? Yeah. I think it, that's a look at the, at the end of the day, Brett, in that in that context, it's your career. So I can present you with information that I feel and I want to talk to you about that I think is going to help you. Uh, but I can't make you do something if you don't believe in it. So my job is all the way through it has been to present information, to present data, to talk to you and the coach about what might make it make the improvement. And then if there's a collective agreement on the fact that we're going to go forward with that, then we're all committed and invested in it. But if you try and bring an athlete along a journey with something that they're not really invested in, then it's it's, ne it's not going to work. And mm -hmm. then then they get a chance to self-validate by saying, well, I told you it wouldn't work when they haven't actually been invested in it. So right. there's no use trying to make someone do something that they, they're not really, they don't really believe in. So yeah, it's incumbent upon the, the, the support staff and the coach, if the coach believes in it as well, to bring the athlete on a journey about believing it's going to actually make a difference. So... Mm -hmm. That's what I did, and there were times where, um, look, there were times we tried things and they didn't sort of work out the way we thought, but yeah. we were prepared to acknowledge and accept that and and then move on to the, to what we thought would work. So, well, um, I always yeah. appreciate your work ethic, and and one of the things when I transitioned into coaching, what I wanted my athletes to understand was that I was as invested in them as they were in themselves. I wanted them to feel like it was a partnership. And I always felt that from you. I was, it was genuine. It wasn't something that you were uh, manufacturing. It wasn't something that you were faking. Like I remember waking up one day and, and coming down to breakfast and saying, Hey, uh, how you doing, man? And you, and you were like, good, good. You know? Um, but, but I'd realized at that point that you'd been up all night working on analysis, you know, yeah. like literally all night. And here you are at breakfast and you're putting on a brave face and you're, you know, you're showing that, I'm thinking to myself, oh, this guy's got, you know, eight hours sleep. And here you are, I've realized that you've been up all night working for us. And 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 when you have that kind of buy-in and commitment from someone, there's no way that you can't reciprocate that back. It's like, dude, this guy is going to bust his ass from me and, and stay up all night just to analyze my races. And then in the morning, present it to me at breakfast. I'm like, that's a guy I want to die for, you know? So it's like, I always felt that from you, you know? Yeah, I, you know, it comes back down to what we talked about before, but about it being invested in in uh, in what you're doing and invested in the people you're working for, and you know, um, that's part of that building that trust and building that connection with with the, with the athlete group or player group. Now working as I am in a team sport, that they they feel like the people around them are as invested in what they're doing as they are. Yeah, I think that I think that's really important in fostering that 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 commitment and that relationship and that opportunity then to have the right conversations at the right time. Yeah. Let's go into the details of it then. What were you doing all night? I never really asked you. I mean, I saw the, I saw the outcome of like the transcript. Of, yeah. his, his well, look, you know, as I said, I know that now that swimming of, you know, technology's come so fast, you know, since, yeah. uh, since those days. So it's far more automated now. And, and I would suggest probably a whole lot more potentially accurate than what we were doing, particularly in those days. But mm. You know, it was quite a laborsome and time-consuming task to to analyze the, the the races in terms of breaking it down into segments and getting calculating velocities across the, the, the sections of the race that you break down. So in, in your specialty race, the 50, we would break that down into 10-meter segments mm. uh, and look at the velocity, the stroke rate, and distance per stroke in each of those segments. Um, you know, also some un un underwater times and start time and finish time, etc. So... Right. Because you needed to watch the race through and stop it and then move it to, we use the lane rope markers to give us distance markers. Then you'd make to make sure that you had the center of the head going through that marker. Mm. Things just took time to add up. And then, you know, for me, it was really important that it was accurate. So I do it 
and then I go back and I do it again to double check the numbers to make sure that I was giving, you know, because particularly if you're going to be asking a coach and an athlete between maybe a heat and a semi-final or between a semi-final and a final to make some adjustments based on the data, then you've got to make sure it's right. Yeah. You know, so double check it and then produce some the report of that particular race and then then make a choice on what races you think are relevant in your history to compare it to. Yeah. So you pick the your, your best performance, and then you'd pick a maybe a, a you know relevant. If it was a heat swim, you'd pick a relevant heat swim to compare it to because you know you sort of progress the way you swim the races through heat semifinal final. Mm. So produce those reports, and then then it was a matter of once that was all done, not just handing it back. So then I would look through them and have a think about well, what are my talking points that I want to highlight for mm. the coach and athletes? So what are the comments I want to make, and how am I going to present that? So as yeah. well as knowing on the video, well, there's a there's a point here at between 25 and 35, so I meant to make sure I've got the video available to go there and, and we can talk about it, but then watch it because, you know, I'm sure you would agree that the most powerful images are the ones that you can see on video about connecting with what the data is telling you with what you can actually see on the video. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, like going back to that that point of like I always, allow, I always appreciated the fact that you allowed me to then – turn that into some sort of psychological component like you know it's one yeah. thing to analyze the numbers and look at the science but then it's also another thing to say well what what, what the fuck am i going to do about it you know what i mean it's like you got to do something about it and, and at that point um as an athlete you've got uh, a couple of hours to analyze the data and say well how, how can i make a change here and and generally what i found for me personally it, it came down to um, some sort of psychological component that I had to figure out of like, okay, well, where, where am I going to make an adjustment here and how am I going to factor that into my, my head? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's particularly with a race like the 50, it, it, it can all be about, you know, your psychological arousal where you are. Like you, if you right. overswim the first 15 meters, it might be because you, 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 you're too wound up and right, but it's right. a very it's a very fine line isn't it you don't want to be under aroused because then you you understood the first 15 and the race is gone from you yep. so yeah um so yeah there was there's there's definitely psychology you know because you don't just sort of go okay i'm going to fix that and do it so it's about being mindful about what do i need to be doing what i need to be thinking about a point in the race you know so if it's you know if it's a 200 meter swimmer it's often the third 50 where things fall away you know, so it's okay. Well, you know, second fifty into third fifty. So, how? What are we? Not what do we need to change in that at that point in time, but what are we going to be thinking about? How are we going to be approaching the, you know, yeah. one one seventy? Sorry, um, you know, seventy five to a hundred, and then a hundred to one hundred and twenty five. What's our what's our tactics in that point in time, and what where's our mind need to be? Um, right. And you know, across the time, I've become really acutely aware of the 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 power of, uh, of mindset and where your attention is and where mm. your focus is mm. in the moment to bring performance and how easy it is for our minds just to drift off into somewhere else. Right. And that, that ultimately takes away from performance. And it might be drifting away to thinking about the outcome or drifting away to thinking about, you know, what I can or can't do as opposed to right. staying in the moment, staying focused and executing whatever skill it is that you're involved in yeah. right then and there. Yeah. Now, now there was a moment that was very significant in in um, in changing the outcome of an event, and I and my memory's slightly fuzzy on it, but I think you're involved. Were you at the 2009 World Championships? I was. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm I'm almost 100 percent sure it was you um, from from memory, and I'm not the best in terms of memory. So, but I get the impression that between the semi-final and the final of the 100 freestyle when caesar ended up breaking the world record in the 100 freestyle i get the impression in my memory that you handed me a piece of paper and said i'm not supposed to hand you this but i want you to i want you to have this and um and i gladly took it but i but i think you handed me a piece of paper that basically just gave me the breakdown of analysis that you did you didn't give me any advice you didn't break it down for me you just basically handed me a piece of paper and yeah. and what i knew from that piece of paper is how to read it because of, of of the years that i've had with you and as a coach at that point in time i gotta tell you was absolutely crucial 
in order for us to adjust the the outcome of of what Caesar was doing and how he was approaching the race. And so basically you said to me, like, you need to take a look at this. And I looked at it and, and I looked at it fairly deeply. And and what I found is, uh, again, I talked to Caesar about this, by the way. So I looked at the analysis and I took it to Caesar and I said, hey, here's how we can win. Here's how we can break the world record. And so what I saw from the analysis was that Alan Bernard had rated up fairly highly and Caesar's rate was fairly low. He was, he was on the back end of, of, of the kind of the stroke rate and the stroke length. And what I said to Caesar, I said, look, if you put a little bit of pressure on this thing at the front end and you maintain at the back end, I think you can win this thing. I think you can break the world record. Mm. And, and it, it all came from this analysis that you gave me again. It was, it was very secretive at the time, but, um, but look, it made the difference. And, and things like that, like the little the little adjustments that you can make can make a world of difference. And Caesar ended up doing exactly, Caesar had a, a magical way of doing exactly what you told him to do. He, he just had that skill. Mm. And basically it was like, I want you to take two extra strokes. So he was out, on, I think he was out in 31 strokes, the first 50 in the semifinal. I said, I want you to be out in 33. I said, Alan, Alan is out in 38, so he's rating up higher. He's going to be, he's going to be catching less water. But if you rate up just a little bit more and you get out a little bit faster, I guarantee you're going to put pressure on him and he's going to scramble and you're going to be able to maintain your length and you're going to break the world record. And, and I'm telling you, it worked to the T. That's exactly how it happened. Um, so I do have to thank you for that, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. My memory of that is, uh, and look, it's a, it's a long time ago now, isn't it, Brett? But yeah, yeah. that we, my memory is we didn't have anyone in that final. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. So I think, you know, from that perspective, then it's like, well, you know, obviously got a really good relationship with you. It yeah. always was interested in helping you and came and visited you in Auburn a couple of times and, yeah and uh, keeping you across any changes in our pace charts that we were making and, and updating you on that. So I thought, okay, yeah. well, look, I'll just give uh, Brett this. Because we were always analysing our competitor swimmers. So I would video all the other races regardless and do the analysis. So that was done for our, for our databasing. But I think, right. okay, well, I'm going to hand that over. And, and, and you know, because similar, similar sort of observations. But, um, again, as you said, it's not my job then to – it's like, well, you're the coach now, so yeah, I'll give you that. But yeah, well, that, that's a great outcome then. Yeah, sure. no, look, I, uh, it was one of those situations where it was like, man, thank, thank God for that because it, it made us make a few adjustments. And I think you hear that like in the Super Bowl, you know, like or, or a football game in, in the NFL, like in, in football, they'll say they'll go in at halftime yeah. and the coaches will make adjustments and they'll come out. And, and that's kind of what it was. It was a halftime adjustment for us and, and it ended up paying dividends. And look, you got to have the right athlete to be able to do that, to make that adjustment, yeah. who, can, who can do – what you tell them to do. And, and that was Caesar for sure. Um, but yeah, it was one of those situations where I was just thankful for the relationship that we had, you know? Yeah. Um, now, wasn't in that, terms of, wasn't that a crazy meat, Brett? <laughs> that uh, 2009 World Championships. 2009 World Champs was just nuts. I mean, it was a, it was a perfect setting. First of all, it was in Rome in summer. Yeah, I lovely. mean, Paul, I mean, and then, and then you have these super suits that everyone's wearing. It was just like a recipe for fast women, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I think the the interesting thing, thinking back on that now, is that you know the, for the athletes that were wearing them and were being successful, it was the, and the coach and the athlete really understanding and swimming with and to the potential of the suits, but not overplaying them. So a bit like you told me that, like Elaine, maybe overrating because yeah. he just got so high and so good in the water, and you know, so yeah. um, there was there was a little bit of uh, you know the adaptability and the ability to understand what was going on to, to those to the success of those athletes at that time, but yeah, some unbelievable times swam. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, I do want to transition into kind of where you went from that. So in terms of Victorian swimming, Australian swimming, pick you up as, as, as a leader, you know, you, you start to work for Australian swimming, swimming Australia, whatever it was called at the time. Yeah. And then, and then you move on. So how did you transition out and what was that transition for you? Uh, well, I, I, left swimming, I left swimming and moved on from Swimming Australia after, after the London Olympics. 
Mm. Uh, and I went to triathlon and I took on a performance director role. So, okay. uh, yeah, I, I think at the time there was a whole lot of things that were going on uh, in swimming around London and the performances right. there. And, and, you know, a lot of it probably uh, external opinion that wasn't necessarily correct in my view. And there was lots of things internally that did go wrong that we should, that we needed to be looked at and reviewed. So mm. I just, it just gave me a real sense that it was maybe time for me, if I wanted to, for me, if I wanted to sort of explore leadership more and explore what my career might be for mm. me to step away and not be pigeonholed as just a swimming guy and just a scientist. And right. so uh, that's, I took, you know, I got approached about applying for this role and I thought, yep, okay, I'll, I'll have a look at it and was successful. And my last meet with swimming was the world short course in Istanbul uh, in uh, 2012. So, and I started with triathlon then. So uh, yeah, look, I, I, it was a, I'm really grateful that I did it. I have no, absolutely no regrets. My, I've, I've discovered so much more about, uh, about working in different sports and working with different athletes and coaches and about leadership on, on the last on the journey I've been in the last 10 or so years. So um, really, really enjoyed it. It's been, been an absolute blast. And I've learned an incredible amount that I, it's hard to say that I wouldn't, may not have learned that if I had have stayed where I was, but I just feel like the, the perspectives you get from stepping away and doing a whole bunch of different things um, and working with different people and seeing different sports. I've worked through triathlon, through rowing, and now I'm with hockey. So you sort of got this migration from two individual sports in swimming and triathlon mm. to uh, rowing where you've got teams within a team. So you've got crews within a larger team and now to a, a truly team sport. So it's, it's yeah. been a really good journey. Yeah. What are they looking for? What's triathlon and rowing and, um, you know, right. hockey? Uh, that's, that's the dog back there. Sorry about that. Um, right. My puppy's fighting around here. What are they looking for in terms of, of leadership? And what are the things that, that correlate and, and connect with, with all four of those things? Uh, look, I think, you know, it's the, in, terms of, in terms of leadership, it's really about what's needed in the program at the point in time. So, you know, I think back to triathlon and, you know, once you're the, in a PD role, you've got a, a greater responsibility for the strategic direction of the program. Mm. Uh, and triathlon was interesting because it was really, you got a lot there. It's a very individual sport. Yeah, yeah. You know, those athletes that exi exist and train by themselves. I had the opportunity to work with a coach at triathlon that really did invest and, and buy into the idea of a group training together to maintain daily performance standards. And I think, you know, that was where a lot of success came from for, for his, for his group in particular, he coached uh, Jamie Turner, he coached Gwen Jorgensen and she won the gold medal at, in Rio. She was in a um, competitor for the USA, Right. but it was the environment that he created around those athlete, athletes that Gwen invested in because she believed in this environment that was going to challenge her on a daily basis to be the very best. So, mm. um, so that, that, that in that sport in particular, they're looking for, I suppose, you to lead by providing each of the coaching pods or athlete groups the opportunity to do what they felt was right for them and how do you manage that and move that around and bring them together when you need to and let them go off and do their own thing. Mm. Uh, which is a little bit like what swimming was back in the day, where we, where when we were working, where I was swimming, and you were, you were an athlete, was that you had lots of diverse coaching groups. Like at different times, we could have anywhere up to 15, 16, 17 different coaching programs that would put athletes onto the national team. Uh, so, rowing was the we when I started with rowing after the Rio Olympics, the sport had made a decision to centralize their senior program. So all the set males came into one location in Canberra oh, okay. and, all, and all the girls, all the females went to a, a new training center that we were building in Penrith mm. uh, on, on Penrith on the Nepean river okay. and close to, you know, a couple of kilometers away from the, uh, from the Sydney 2000 Olympic rowing, or Olympic Regatta Center where they held the rowing and the, and the flat water kayak. So that was really different because you were then leading two programs that were centralized. So you had, so that was about 
you know, you've got athletes in a DTE on a daily basis preparing and training to ultimately move into cruise and ultimately move on to, you know, to the, to the world championships and then the game. So that, uh, that was a really steep learning curve for me in, in managing the dynamics of a, of an, of a centralized environment where you had lots of athletes. So 25 men together with 25 women, uh, three coaches and a large beast of a program in terms of what you needed to move around the world and what you need to do. So wow. that was really about, again, you know, all my, all my, uh, journey through leadership has been about how do I, even though I'm technically getting further away from the athletes mm. or the coalface, how do I make sure I'm remaining connected with them so that I, I get a feel and an understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and now at, uh, at hockey, it, it's, uh, I mean, both, both, well, our men's program is still centralized here in Perth. We've had to make some changes to our structure around our women's program because we received a significant funding cut off the back of Tokyo for the women. So that's been a really interesting challenge from a leadership perspective in terms of bringing the girls, bringing the female athletes and the staff around that program on a journey about, uh, you know, understanding our, our resource limitations, but really believing we can still do something special, even though we're going to have to make these adjustments. So this is about not about what we don't have. This is about the opportunity in front of us to, to really, you know, be clear about what's important to us and be clear about what's going to improve performance and be clear about the importance of the culture in the group and around the group and what that leads to in terms of um, performance. And I, you know, I think we did a, the girls, the team did a fantastic job last year. They went from that, from a disappointing Tokyo Olympics to having the, essentially having the RES tell them that, that they don't have any belief in them, their ability to medal in Paris to going to a world cup last year and getting a bronze medal. So, um, you know, I think they're, they're on a, they're on a really good journey. So really excited about what's so what, what we can do. Destro swim towers gain strength in the water with a tower of power, save $150 per double swim tower by using code Brett. B-R-E-T-T at checkout. Destromachines.com Vasa has been the go-to training tool outside of the pool for over 30 years. Vasa's products are ideal for developing power and proper technique in your swimmer's catch. Add a few Vasa trainers to your pool deck and it's like adding an extra lane to your swimming pool. Go to Vasatrainer.com, use code BREAD at checkout and get 10% off anything from Vasa. So what's what's your position then now? What is what's the official title? I'm the high performance director for Hockey Australia. Okay, so in terms of hierarchy, high performance director sits where in in the hierarchy? So I report directly to the CEO of the organisation. So essentially, you know, the performance director role is essentially like the CEO of the high performance unit, I suppose. Uh, so uh, the the we have two head coaches for the men's and women's program that report in into me so i'm directly managing those those two head coaches and then those two programs through them so and so the the, the men's program is situated where and the women's are where so the men are situated in perth uh, okay. where hockey has been for years for a long time and the women were centralized here um we have had to decentralize that now however there are still a large group of of the females that have got their lives set up over here in Perth. So we'll still run a DTE, but we will have athletes uh, in the squad that will train in their home environment. So we'll have a, uh, some girls that are in Queensland, for example, uh, training uh, over there. And we will, we need to find the opportunity to get them in together to prepare for targeted uh, tournaments and, and competition periods. Mm. I do have to be specific. I apologize because I'm I'm in um, North America where when they say hockey, they mean ice hockey. So yes, yeah. I found that it's a, a, a totally different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the, the USA women uh, were are in pro league this year, so we're we're playing against them soon. So in in field hockey, field so, hockey. So yeah, so I think how they're, many, they're... Um, how, how many? I mean, I guess it's hard to put a number on it, but but how many? countries compete in field hockey 
Uh, so we so based at the recent World Cup, for example, there were sixteen teams in in the in the tournament, four pools of four, uh, and there are uh, probably a number of teams below that that that, that haven't qualified. So right, you'd right. be looking at sort of circa thirty or there's large number of member nations of FIH it's just a matter of you know understanding um, you know where the where the what level of hockey they have that they're playing yeah. in, in each of their each of their countries so Europe is the is the major power base um, okay. and then you've got uh, then obviously North America and then there's the South American teams Argentina in particular on both sides are, are quite is quite strong um, and and Chile. Uh, we're at the World Cup, and then obviously in Oceania, you got Australia and New Zealand, uh, South Africa. So it's it's strong at the Commonwealth Games, uh, and obviously it's it's also a key Olympic sport that's been yeah. in the program for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there competition between the men and the women on on the hockey side? You know, in Australia, or like do they compete against each other? Well, they don't play against each other. Really? Right? Yeah, obviously, but like certainly, yeah. uh, certainly, you know, look, I think. Maybe historically there was a bit of competition that might have gone on between the two programs, but you know, I, I've since I've come in, I've tried to lead the program as the as the best for the program and 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 encourage connection between the the two coaching groups in particular. Yeah. I think they, there's lots of things that come from talking to other coaches, not only in your own sport but other sports as well, in terms of learnings and ideas. Mm. Uh, and opportunities so um, and being very clear with the two playing groups that while you know don't think that just don't look over the fence and see another program doing something different and think that they've got something you haven't got right we are your program is structured to deliver the best for what you need mm. uh, so um, trying to remove that idea of of competition i suppose between the two programs because you want both programs to be successful and you want both programs to be happy when the other one is successful as well. Right. You've deal you've dealt with individual superstars in the past, obviously with, with swimming and, and uh, rowing and some, and some other capacities. So, in terms of now moving into a team sport, how do you deal with the, with the the superstars, the people that kind of, you know, the ones that are, are there, kind of, I, I wouldn't say carrying the team, but certainly maybe the face of the team or, or certainly yeah. getting the results, you know. I think one of the things that's that's interesting coming into a team sport is that you know you always see it when you watch team sports is there's going to be someone who is considered to be the superstar or right. you know the, the the game player or you know right. whatever it might be. But I think if they're in a team that is super successful, hmm. then they have my experience is that those players have a really good sense of that they're not actually bigger than the team, right. Uh, and the perspective is that they, they always seem to bob up when the team needs them to 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 perform. So it might be in the last few di the dying seconds of a match, and they do something super special, for, and they right. get the team over the line. Hmm. It's interesting that their their approach to that is not about well, I've got to do something, so get me the ball or get me whatever it is. It's hmm. It's about them saying I'm playing my role for the team first, which means I need to make sure I'm in the right place. And if the opportunity comes along, then I need to be ready to execute. Mm. And, they, and they are, and they they understand very clearly that that while they may be technically better players, they're only as they're only as good as the rest of the team are. So, mm. what's their role in bringing lifting the standard of the of the whole team? Mm. Because if they want to win, ultimately the team has to win. So it, it's a it's a different. It's a it's a different mindset because you have to you have to exist in a team environment and you have to you have to have the trust of everyone in the team and right. you have to trust everyone in the team as well. Yeah, so that's yeah. the that's the really interesting thing about working in working in a team sport now is is really uh, getting the opportunity to work with those super cool environments where you, you've really got to build a really good culture and a strong. Uh, understanding of the expectations and the the having this the strength of trust that you can call someone out when they're not doing the right thing right and, and they accept it as you're not you're not you're not talking to me because it's personal you're talking to me because 
I haven't lived up to what are our agreed standards or our agreed expectations. Yeah, uh, and right. that can be that can be the the first year rookie calling the the ten year super experienced guy on something, if that's the agreed expectation of the team. Right, and I think that that's you know that that's really good to see. I think they're the they're the cultures and, and the teams that you, that are that are going to be successful. And yeah. What about in your role in terms of high performance manager? You said it's kind of almost like a CEO role. So in terms of you and the head coach, how 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 do you interact? How do you how how does he or she say, yeah, you're you're the you know you're the decision maker on this aspect, and I'm going to back you on that. And then when do you say, hey, that's your decision, kind of thing? So like how how do those roles um, interface? Yes, yeah, the way I take up the role. Uh, or my role as the performance director is my job is to make sure the coach can do all they need to do to have their attention on what they need to do to make the team better. Right. So uh, I, I, I would talk with them on a daily basis. I go to training my, you know, almost every day to watch and, and talk to the athletes and observe. Um, I'm very clear with, with them that I'm not a technical guy. I'm not a hockey guy. I'm not a hockey coach. I don't come from field hockey. So I'm learning about the game and I'm learning about the tactics and the structures and all those things and, the, and all that, which is great. But my role is to um, support them to do what they need to do to drive the, the team forward. So the decision-making process is that we, if there's decisions that are going to directly impact the team or an individual athlete, I'll talk to the coach about those decisions mm. and say, hey, this is, this is what we've got to decide. Here are the pros, here are the cons, what do you think? And we'll make a collective decision around that. There are some things where they'll go, I don't want to know about that, just just, just do it. And mm. other things with the day-to-day -day functioning of the team, then that's that's their responsibility. So it's like to set up with them a very clear, uh, uh, I, I suppose, role and res role responsibilities, like where does my role sit, what is it? Right. And where's the overlap? Um, and then where is where does their role sit? And making sure that in the overlap, we're talking lots and communicating lots. So, as I said, we'll talk casually through the week, and we'll have a set weekly meeting where we get together and we've got an agenda we go through to tick, tick off bits and pieces. Uh, that might be what's happening this week or next week. It might be some long-term planning stuff. Okay, well, you know. We now know where we're going to be playing leading into the Paris Olympics. So let's start thinking about, uh, you know, our planning for trips and tours and, and all those sort of things or or selection concerns or player concerns or, you know, how we're going to manage all those things. So uh, and then there'll be some things that are, you know, random ones where they'll be asking for support on, you know, we've got a, you know, this is the, this is a challenge we've got with a particular player. What do you think? How should we manage it? who's going to have the conversation. So, you know, there's, there's that there where it's, you know, we, we collectively make the decisions on those things together, which is, mm -hmm. it's really important because you need to be aligned. Um, and you can have, you can have robust discussion. You can have disagreement behind closed doors, but ultimately mm -hmm. once you go out to face the, either the staff group or the playing group, you have, there has to be alignment between, you know, uh, what, what the decision is and owning that. Yeah. What's your opinion on um, kind of like high performance centers? It sounds like the the men, especially, and maybe partly the women, have kind of a high performance situation where they're training together, living together, and that sort of thing. Almost like an, an Australian Institute of Sport back in the day for swimming, where you know you, you had a, a group of coaches and the best swimmers coming down, and they're all living together and they're all working together. So it. In your personal opinion, as as a high performance director, do you come in and say this is the best setup, or do you try and disband that and say I, I think it's better if they all work individually and then come together at a certain point? I mean, what's your what's your personal opinion on that? Oh, I think for a team sport, uh, you know, the best teams train together. Because, right. So uh, I think it's important. Like you, you think about all the the like. Any any team competition, the, the teams will train together and prepare together. So 
I think it's important that though that the teams have an opportunity to to train together. They the coaches get a chance to work through the the physical prep and then the technical and the and the tactical prep for the team so that they so there's that preparation leading into the competition. So I think for for hockey, for field hockey, the the best setup and the best structure and the players believe in this as well is that they spend a large period of time together training, preparing for for their major major uh, tournaments. Other sports, you know, I, I think, you know, with, with swimming, for example, I think there's there's the, the it, it's really it's a more it's a more nuanced discussion, I think, because if you want to be able to, to support the co the athletes with the right support services, uh, then you you really need to have an environment where those things can be set up and structured and easy to access and ready to go because they're not as as mobile as they might have been previously because of they're far better technology wise. So, right. so maybe it's a it's a case of having a central point where all that is that programs can come to to utilize. So that's sort of lot not you are encouraging there's a there might be a program that's running there, but you know, you you want to make the the, the difference is that, that you've got to have the right fit for that individual athlete and their their um, discipline. And, mm. and the coach that, that's working with them uh, yeah. and, the, and the right environment around them. So it's not as it's not as easy in an individual sport like swimming to say, well, we'll just get everyone together and they'll all train there and it'll, it'll all be fine because there are other elements that play into it. But yeah. if you're going to be able to deliver a true high-performance environment around an athlete, it's very difficult to see how you could do that in a 25-metre, one-and-a-half-metre deep pool with no other support around you. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I guess where I'm coming from is, is part of my criticism of the U.S. system is it, is it hasn't evolved from this idea of, you know, you go through college and then um, there's, there's no real professional system set up, you know. So it's like, well, maybe I'll just hang around to college and hope for the best kind of thing situation. So you have these, um, you know, out of college athletes, overaged athletes that, that want to have careers, that want to maybe even start a family and things like that and have sponsors, but then they're having to get stuck in these collegiate programs where there's no real professional setting. It's like, well, this yeah. is what we do for the college and this is what I get paid for. So if you want to be part of that, you can, you can do that. And, and so there's never been this real progression in the, in the U S system of, of going into these professional settings. And, and again, I don't, I don't know what the best system is necessarily. And, and I think it would be difficult, right? Like it, obviously there's this funding that, that comes into this. So, you know, when you're talking about the hockey team, it's like, well, if you're going to bring everybody together from all around the country into one centralized situation, then you got to understand that these, these, these guys and girls are going to have families and they're going to have whatever it is, but there's also got to be the support network to be able to sustain that to say, yeah, I can live here and I can, I can uh, thrive in this environment. So in, in terms of the funding, where does that come from? So we're, we're like all Olympic sports in Australia, primarily funded through the AIS. So we get our AIS funding allocations. We provide a, a, uh, a small living allowance to the athletes through that. So when you say AIS, I just want to clarify for those international uh, people. Australian Institute of Sports. Australian Institute of Sport. Yeah. yeah. So, and that, that's funded by the federal government. Yeah. So that's sort of that's from the federal government. It comes down through the 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 main uh, funding body is the Australian Sports Commission, okay. and they are, and they look after all of they look after participation and also high performance sport in in Australia, and the high performance sport arm is the Australian Institute of Sport. And they now, which is different to when when you were swimming, Brett. They don't run programs anymore. The AIS they fund sports to run programs. So, oh. so uh, they provide funding to hockey, and we run our program strategically as we as we think is best for the sport. So, so, but we we are very cognizant of making sure that athletes are thriving in their environment uh, and are able to then come to training and commit and do what they need to do at training because they're not worried about day to day or what's happening with, you know, employment or whatever. And so encouraging them to have, we structure training so they are able to work uh, or, or study. Uh, we, we do have some athletes who are working almost full time really? uh, in their 
careers. Uh, so, and and doing very very well in those as well. So, um, obviously got super supportive employers, uh, and we work closely with them to maintain that relationship, not just between the athlete and the employer, but between us and the employer as well, mm. uh, in terms of needing time to travel and do what do what needs to be done. Um, but it's 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 difficult. It's hard. I mean, as I said before, we've got a, we had a significant cut in our funding for our women's program. Forty percent of the funding for the women's program was taken off the women, which has meant we need to change the the program away from being centralised. Which means we change the amount of that we can support the athletes with directly. Which means some players have made the choice to go. Well, I can't stay here. It's not sustainable. I have to go home. Right, right. And I need to be with my, you know back with my family essentially to, to be yeah. able to afford to live and, and train. So mm. um, yeah, it, it, the funding one's a real challenging one, but you know, I think back, you know, back to your original point about the, the U S that that's always been an observation of mine is that you, you have such a, the U S has such a uh, really good pathway up until college. Yeah. And then from there, it just becomes, mm a bit of a nebulous i suppose it doesn't right. really know what, what's happening so right. you know th that's where i think a couple of really targeted high performance centers what maybe they're super clubs or whatever the structure might be that provides the opportunity for athletes who are like you say over age or ready to go can move there to a major location you can have all the support structures and systems around them that you need um, and they also have the opportunity to to find careers and work and, and do what they need to do. So, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously that there's a there's a how are you going to resource that is is the big question. Yeah, yeah, I, I get this question a lot in terms of um, you know the, the Americans asking me in you know basically back in Australia like what are the top sports? So so in terms of like the hierarchy of sports in Australia right now, what where would you position certain sports in terms of the, the top, top three, top five type sports? Well, I mean, I think cricket's always been, you know, a, a spiritually popular game in, in, in Australia. So I think certainly during the summertime, that's that's up there. Uh, I think from, from a national perspective during the wintertime, and, he, and particularly in in this in Melbourne uh, during summer as well, then uh, AFL Australian Australian Rules Football, um, which is the, our home game, is is pop, is super popular. And there's a there's a lot of discussion, a lot of talk about that. The season, you know, it's it's a national game now. There's teams in uh, Queensland, there's teams in Sydney, in Wales, Victoria, obviously South Australia, West Australia. So it's a truly national competition. Uh, so it would be you know, the sort of sport that dominates um, the the landscape from March through to September right. um, nationally. Uh, and then certainly during summer in different pockets, you, you still get people talking about what's going on with pre-season draft with, you know, recruitment, so forth. So yeah. AFL would be up there. And then rugby league's obviously another super popular sport as well on the eastern seaboard. Queensland used yeah. the Wales and to a lesser extent in, in Melbourne. So I think uh, they would be, from my, from my perspective, the, the three most popular ones. And, and I think cricket's done a really good job with women's cricket, and they were probably the leaders in, in uh, you know, in bringing that to uh, to the forefront and providing yeah. opportunities for the female cricket team, and then also then uh, you know ramping up the the support to the group and their opportunities to be truly professional. And the AFL are. Uh, uh, catching up now with that, and and women's rugby league now I know is also making big big leaps and bounds in yeah. in, uh, in allowing the, the the female side of the sport to flourish and and to be truly professional as well, which is great to see. Yeah, well, listen, man, I appreciate this. Look, it's it's it is primarily a swimming podcast, I guess. Yeah. I love I love talking <laughs> to different people, but in terms of the the landscape, then where swimming is now, like I get this question a lot too. Is like you know. Back in the early 2000s, it was almost like this, um, you know, this glory, this, this, you know, golden period of uh, the yeah. golden swimming type of thing where you had, you know, the Ian Thorpes and Kieran Perkins and Grant Hackett's and those sorts of people where Susie O'Neill's and Patria Thomas. And so you had these superstars, but like, w w 
in terms of swimming and back home in Australia, I haven't been home in like 15 years. So it's like, where is it now? Where is swimming? Yeah, look, that, that's a really good question, uh, Brett. And I was just talking yesterday with, uh, with the head coach of the now, Rowan. Rowan Taylor's the head coach now. I was chatting mm-hmm. with him yesterday and just saying to him, mate, swimming don't have any sponsors. Mm. I know. Mm. So it's really... And look, it's, it's incredibly complex and I don't, you know, I'm an outside observer now as well, so I right. don't want to be overly critical of, of, of right. swimming per se, but I find it difficult to understand off the back of the performances they had in Tokyo, which were amazing. They did mm. a wonderful job. The athletes performed out of the box, really, mm. didn't they, in terms of their, their medal performances and, and the overall team performance. Yeah. Uh, you know, relays, the whole bit, you know, it was really, really good. Um, how they haven't managed to leverage that to a, to a greater perspective for the betterment of the sport, I'm, I'm not really clear on. Because, you know, I reflect back on those days, you know, it used to be that, you know, for, for your American listeners, we had, a, we, have a, we had a night, we had a Saturday night show called Hey Hey at Saturday, which was massive, like tonight lifestyle sort of thing. And they would cut to the 1500 metre freestyle final in the middle of that show right. just to, to watch Kieran, you know, and then Hacky, Swim the 1500 meter final at our national championships. Yeah, yeah. Um, nationals are broadcast on live TV, so it's. I I I feel like the sport has the opportunity to get back there. I just think it's the moment. It's trying to find its its relevance, I suppose, and where it sits in the landscape. And you know, I hope I still have a real connection to swimming and and want the best for it. So I want it to get back to those those that level of awareness and popularity in the, in the market, because I think it, I think it can get back there. And I think they have the talent at the moment, certainly in terms of the, the individual athletes, but the team performance as well to, to leverage that. That's actually a good point that you bring up and, and, and being somebody that's in hockey and, and field hockey, it, it, it's not, you know, at, at the forefront, let's say, uh, of of the number one sport in Australia or, or number one sport in the world. So in terms of like building brand and and someone who's a high performance manager, how do you how do you uh, you know assist and uh, facilitate the the athletes to to build brand within field hockey? Yeah, so look, uh, it, that's a really good question because we're trying to do that here. Uh, you know, there's been different times where the the two respective teams, the the women's team is the Hockey Roos, the men's team is right. the Kookaburras. They have been really recognisable team brands in Australia. And, you know, certainly 2000 when the Hockey Roos won in Sydney was that that time. They were sponsored by Telstra, as swimming was. They were really big in the marketplace. And the the Kookaburras won in 2004. So there's been times where they've been really um, present in the the marketplace. So the the opportunity now is to try and do that. And that's about having matches at home here in Australia, but also being the athletes are they're of the demographic that are super invested in and understand social media and and, and yeah. their reach through that platform so facilitating them to find the appropriate way to do that through the team environment so working with the commercial team within hockey australia to basically have someone telling our telling the story telling our story is what we want to do yeah. so it's not just about well we go to this competition and play. It's about well what happens on through the preparations, and we've seen the power of that sort of storytelling through you know Drive to Survive on Netflix, or yeah. people are really interested in what happens not just at competition day, but what happens mm. behind the scenes. So how mm. do we tell the story of the group and but tell the story of individuals within that group as well yeah. to connect with a wider audience, and that's yeah. what we're we're really trying to do and and i'm i'm not on social media i don't really you know it's not for me but i understand the power of it for leveraging brand and what the team need to do so my role is to facilitate the correct way to do that and support the athletes to engage in it the way they want to uh, and to have the right staff around that, that connect with the team and can do that yeah awesome well um I'm going to talk with you offline. I work. I work in tech company now. I work for. Oh, cool. called, I work for an app called Any Question. We're all about building brand and connect connection to to great athletes. So I'm going. To, I'm going to talk with you offline about this. But um, we'll, we'll get hockey up on the platform. That'd be cool. But um, 
listen, man, it's been great to catch up and uh, and do this. And it's been it's been fun, man. It's been too long. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Hawkey. Yeah. All right, mate. Take care. Hey. Eh? Good luck with everything. Thank you. See ya. I would like to tell a story of how Swim Angel Fish improved my skills and a major aspect of my life. Okay, and, and you are controlling on the whole time. First of all, when, when I was a small child, when I was like four years old, I had a fear of going in the water because I was afraid of getting my going, water going in my eyes and also the fear of drowning. No flippers. Do you want me to hold you? Oh yes, the whole time. Let's finish this. I gotcha. Good job, Peter. I'm gonna hang on the whole time. What was that? Easy or hard? Easy. You tell me. Easy. It was. Easy. I'm a super swimmer. You're a good swimmer. Your body flows. Did you see that time? How there was no discussion and I just grabbed the opportunity in a much better way? Please hold on the whole time. And touch and let go. Smile. Let me show you a good smile. And when I got to the age of 11, I wanted to start. I wanted to start developing swimming skills because I noticed that a lot of my friends and peers have are good at swimming. Well, let's show them how we learn. To I can now let go the whole way. The whole way. Yeah. So how about you're gonna come around and see us from the whole way for your first time ever with not me touching. Can I swim next to you? Yeah, of course. Oh, so oh, you. Excuse me. Excuse me. Oh, oh, oh. Are you okay or do you want me to touch you? Last time, go, go. I swam a whole yeah. without anyone touching me. That is incredible. It is incredible. After all, in conclusion, I think I would like to thank Swim Angel Fish for doing a great job of helping me develop confidence, bravery, and skill.